This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. We're also joined by our special guest, David Chen. Hello again, David. Hey, I think you can actually describe me as next picture show patron, David Chen. Just <laughs> wow. on the Patreon page. We could describe page. you as best guest ever, David <laughs> this Chen. Gotta gr- subscribe incredible. to that Patreon, guys. You know, gotta, yeah. gotta get those yeah. subscribers there. My kids can't dine on page views, as I like to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so patro- anything, any little bit helps. Yes. So last week we talked about Throne of Blood, Akira Kurosawa's free adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. And now this week we have the new film, The Tragedy of Macbeth, perhaps the most scrupulous by the letter adaptation of the play ever put on screen. This comes as something of a surprise since its director, Joel Cohen, had no problem turning Homer's The Odyssey into a musical comedy set in rural Mississippi during the Depression. But maybe his brother Ethan is the irreverent one. For the first time, Cohen is operating alone for the tragedy of Macbeth, and he's cast his wife and longtime collaborator, Frances McDormand, as Lady Macbeth. Meanwhile, Cohen finally seizes the opportunity to work with Denzel Washington, who makes for a particularly robust Lord Macbeth. We'll discuss the finer details of Cohen's staging of the play, but all of the expected elements are present. The Weird Sisters, or in this case, Weird Sister, with wicked prophecies, the slaying of King Duncan, the slaying of Banquo, and the failed slaying of Banquo's son, the dinner scene where Macbeth sees Banquo and loses his mind, the great Burnham Wood coming to Dunsinane Hill, the out-damned spot soliloquy, the sound and fury soliloquy, the slaying of Macbeth by Macduff, the Thane of Fife, etc. But to paraphrase Roger Ebert, it's not what the movie is about, it's how it's about it. We'll discuss how it's about it after the break. Pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. 
my husband. King that shall be. If we should fail. We fail. Didst thou not hear noise? Thought I heard a voice cry, sleep no more. Are you a man? Ah, and a bold one. That dare look upon that which might appall the devil. So what did everyone think of the tragedy of Macbeth? Again, we'll, we will defer to our guest first here. David, what did you think of Cohen's version of Macbeth? Overall, I thought it was incredible. It's a beautiful film, really well done with this uh, black and white coloring. But obviously, uh, it's the production design is done such that it feels like almost a filmed version of a stage play, but with a little bit more abstraction added on to there. The performances are pretty great all around. And, you know, it's obviously Shakespeare being one of the greatest writers of all time. It's nice to hear really talented actors say his words. If I had to level one issue I have with the movie, it's that honestly, it feels a little bit rushed to me. It feels like we're just like going from one scene to the next when theoretically many years pass during the course of this play. I don't really have a chance to feel time like I might if there were, say, extremely ponderous shots of nature, you know, <laughs> which is something that I, I really go for in maybe, my Macbeth adaptations. Maybe just a, a so. scene of Denzel Washington and, uh, say, Brendan Gleeson just sort of standing and facing something for or, or like a really long period of time. lost on the way back from battle, you know, like something yeah. like that. That, that. that would really spice this one up. But yeah, so that's my only complaint. Other than that, I thought it was pretty fantastic. And we can dive into into more specifics later on. Genevieve, what about you? pretty positive on it. I think I maybe have a few more quibbles, mainly coming down to the performances. I think visually, it was just kind of a treat from beginning to end to see this really like uh, expressionist, uh, slightly abstracted take on a filmed stage play that's not meant as a ding against it the way it, it so often is like i think that is again part of the project here and it's not an inert film but it it does feel very like kind of cloistered and set based especially compared to throne of blood which is a lot more like epic in scale and its visuals i loved denzel washington's performance in the end it did take me a minute to kind of get onto its wavelength because i think his performance is very different from the other performances in this film in that it is very much a film performance. And I think a lot of the other actors, Francis McDormand, chief among them, is kind of giving a performance that's, to use the old cliche, to the back of the house, you know? And what Denzel Washington is doing is much more subdued and much more attuned to what film can capture in performance. And in the early going, I was actually like, 
a little confused by it because I was like, why is he like mumbling this like famous soliloquy? Like, and then I realized like, he's not mumbling, he's muttering because this is like Macbeth is like thinking this, you know, he's actually achieving the thing that so few people who perform Shakespeare can do, which is making it sound like he is just thinking this, saying it as he's thinking it. You know, he's not reciting one of the most famous soliloquies in the Western canon. So once I kind of clicked on that and like realized that's what I was seeing, I wasn't seeing like a mush mouth performance of of uh, Macbeth. I was really kind of taken with how uh, Denzel Washington made this his own. I think my quibble in that regard is maybe on Cohen for not aligning the performance styles better of his actors. That said, I I, uh, want to, again, point out that um, Catherine Hunter is the exception to any any sort of quibble I may have about because what she's doing is, again, pretty different from the rest of the cast, but it's so good. And that's a role that, you know, I think more than any other in Macbeth, there's a lot of room for interpretation and kind of doing things a little differently. So I guess, broadly speaking, really enjoyed looking at this film, really enjoyed some of the performances, didn't necessarily love how it all came together as a piece. Interesting. Uh, Tasha, what about you? You know, I I went into this without a ton of enthusiasm, just sort of feeling, you know, this is something that I probably needed to see. I'm not sure that the trailer does an an excellent job of selling what it is, because uh, I went in expecting... A German expressionist, but otherwise a pretty conventional Macbeth. And Catherine Hunter's first uh, appearance on screen kind of made me sit up and take notice and say, oh, okay, this is going to be a Macbeth about choices. And these choices are going to be unusual. And I mean, it it woke me up out of a uh, kind of a lack of expectation for what Cohen was going to be doing with this film. As I kind of hinted at uh, talking about Throne of Blood, it's maybe a little hard for me to see a version of Macbeth at this point as as a movie, you know, as a, a cinematic experience rather than as a series of choices, a series of conscious interpretations of a story that's been picked over a thousand times in a thousand ways. But I ended up being really impressed with a lot of the choices that he makes here. Catherine Hunter as a, a single witch rather than three sisters uh, was one of them. The bizarre contortions she puts herself through, the the image of her standing by the water with those reflections of the sort of imaginary or notional other sisters with her, I thought was really staggering, just stunning. And there's a ton of that throughout the the fight that Macbeth has towards the very end before Macduff in a deserted throne room swirling with leaves is just those leaves <laughs> really striking uh it so is the sort of vision that he has when he basically tells Catherine Hunter that he wants to talk to her boss and uh and water wells up around him in this empty room there's just there's a lot of very imagistic stuff going on in this film and because so much of the, the text is so familiar, I just tend to really respect bold choices made around how to interpret it, how to envision it. So if you put 10 versions of Macbeth in front of me and asked me to like rank them or rate them on a scale or anything like that, I'd, I'd have a hard time with that. All I can tell you is that I enjoyed the experience of taking this in. I enjoyed the performances, even if they are at odds with each other. I I enjoyed 
the way he puts it on the screen and the the just kind of strange and, and interesting interpretations that uh, he's made out of it. And I've just really enjoyed reading him talking about those interpretations and and what he was getting at, because uh, he's been very vocal about why he did a lot of the things he did on this film. Oh, Tasha, this is this is where you and I part ways. Uh, <laughs> what? No, as, as I just we can't, already spoiled on this. Well, we can't disagree on this film, can we? Uh, well, kind of. Yeah. So I saw the Cohen film. Then we did this whole Macbeth project for the reveal. Then I saw the Cohen film again because uh, it was the last film that we talked about uh, on this project. And the more Macbeth that I saw, the more diminished my re- my respect in, in a way was for the, what Cohen does with this movie. It strikes me as the most timid, or the most conservative of the versions of Macbeth that I saw, um, which is of course quite disappointing because this is Joel Cohen and, and you expect very bold choices. I mean, it, you know, you obviously get an extremely bold and excellent choice with regard to the witch and Catherine Hunter. I mean, that is, I will not dispute the brilliance of that choice, but I think it is by far the most, the, by far the boldest choice. The rest are just are subtler. And maybe, and maybe that's the problem with me. Maybe, maybe I didn't like the subtly. Maybe I wanted a, maybe I wanted like a, a more reckless version of, of Macbeth rather than this, maybe than this, what is sort of a fine hued, take on it which has been conceived a certain way and has a kind of a minimalist look to it and you know again it looks it looks fine but again you know german a german expressionist take on macbeth that was done by orson wells orson wells did that you know and so and so what what are you doing for me here uh joel cohen i mean i, I think it's i mean i do think it's a good film what about the choice to make them older yeah than, that was in any of the other that's interesting versions. Uh, yeah because because uh you know in like the polanski they're quite young and uh, and that and that affects things dramatically that's interesting and maybe something we can dig into i don't know if i have any any strong thoughts formulated on on, on that like at the current moment um but there was like one more thing i wanted to say you were talking about how much you didn't like the movie yeah no i don't remember saying any of that um <laughs> But how Joel um, Cohen is a big dummy who you think is a dumb. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, the performance, the variable performances were a pretty big sticking point for me, particularly Frances McDormand. I don't think she's good in this film. <laughs> I don't like that performance. She has such a distinct performance style that I don't really think syncs all that well with the formal language of shakespeare and i you know I, you know maybe we, we talked about this a little bit before or earlier about about the out damn spot soliloquy and lady Macbeth's arc and how difficult that is to pull off and I, and I thought it was particularly hard here to really jibe with that take on it because again i wasn't, wasn't really sold on that performance and it's not really one of my favorite denzel washington performances either so i don't know what to tell you uh, there's a lot of performances on the side there's a lot of smaller supporting performances that i like qu- quite a lot a lot of the character actors that kind of dot this cast the the like i've seen these people here and there type of people harry melling did you love harry terrific melling? Brendan <laughs> terrific yeah. oh my god brendan gleason what a what a performance i love that performance that although all those performances are terrific i'm not and obviously Catherine hunter is mvp here but uh but i just i didn't love 
didn't really feel Denzel Washington or uh, Francis McDormand here as much as I would would have wanted. And, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the film and I know that it, it does make good, subtle choices, but I feel a little bit disappointed that uh, this was not a more robust effort. It didn't seem like what I wanted to see was like, was Joel Cohen making a movie that he absolutely had to make. Right, because mm-hmm. because this is a this is a this is a movie. Macbeth is 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 in their previous movies. Is a big part of Blood, Blood Simple. Is a big part of No Country for Old Men. They make movies that that are you know very Macbeth influenced. And I wanted to see a little more juice out of this movie than I got. Well, you know, Scott, if I was a character in this play waiting to go up against that opinion that you just expressed. I might say something like, come you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here and fill me from crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty, end quote. Because I'm just going to say, I think y'all are underselling how good this movie is, okay? First of all, this is a movie that, in my opinion, is an actual combination of two incredible forms of media, a, a, a stage play and a movie. So the fact that he was able to achieve, it's like, imagine combining two forms of media that like in general wouldn't necessarily mesh too well together. I don't know. I'm just going to throw out like uh, a sculpture and like a painting. And imagine if you looked at something and it's like, I don't, I've never seen that before, but whatever it is, it's a combination of those two things in a way that I've never seen before. That in and of itself is an achievement in my opinion. The notion wait, that there wait, have wait. not been yeah, yeah. bold. You've you've definitely seen <laughs> like plays that that merged like stage convention. I mean, you've seen uh, Lars von Trier's Dogville, for instance. Like, sure, sure, sure. I, I mean, yes, okay, but you know the the execution is really at, at a high level here. I mean, take the fact that they don't use, as far as I can tell, they don't use like any location more than once. In this uh, in this movie, you know, like you're always moving on from location to location. There's like this kind of dreamlike quality to it that's very evocative. So I feel like just from a from a craft perspective, there's a lot to like here. Now, also uh, from an adaptation perspective, decisions were made. Yeah, decisions and were definitely I, made. I think uh, uh, you know choices. Some of the big ones. I'm just I'm just I'm just listing this off the top of my. I didn't write this down, Scott. Okay. The fact that they're older individuals, I think, obviously gives it a much different sort of feel. You know, it's less about like these ambitious youngsters climbing the corporate ladder, and it's more about how do I define my legacy, right? And that's a very different feel than other versions of Macbeth. Ross, yeah, we like got a major talk character about in this thing. He's like, yeah, he. I barely even knew that there was a character named Ross and Macbeth. He's like one of the main leads in this movie, yeah, which is a uh, kind of interesting, kind of interesting way of doing that. And obviously, you've already alluded to Catherine Hunter, which is like probably one of the, if not the best depiction of the witches, which is a critical part of the play. So I rest my case. No, I mean, I, I disagree. I, I, I disagree David's with your lukewarm subscribing from the Patreon, no, Scott, because of you. You just yeah. lost yourself a patron, Scott. And it was it was Scott that did it after all this time. I I definitely wanted to bring in Ross because when you feel like this is a, a lukewarm version that doesn't make decisions, Ross feels like one of the bolder decisions here after Catherine Hunter, who tops all lists. This is a character character who, as far as I can tell, does not have new dialogue or invented dialogue. He's an amalgamation of characters. And as clever Shakespeare adapters tend to do, 
he does a lot of action that doesn't require additional dialogue and you're left to intuit or interpret some of his behavior. But he winds up being kind of the power behind the thrones here. It, it's very clear that he is manipulating circumstances and situations. And I think only having to, to color within the lines of, of Shakespeare's actual dialogue necessarily keeps us from knowing for certain whether he's trying to play both ends against the middle and just be with whoever comes out on top or whether he has an agenda from the start that's uh, against Macbeth. I, I think that he is a very interesting character as played, both because it, the the design on that guy, you know, Alex Hassel's body is very long and lean and the, the costume design around him turns Some good him, goatee work. Excellent, goatee work excellent goatee work. Uh, good facial hair on that. But he also looks like yeah. a crow, you know? He looks like... A, a scarecrow and a signpost. He's just like visually, he's almost as interesting an element as as Catherine Hunter. Yeah, he's very much like a, a Varys or a Littlefinger style character mm-hmm. from Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Like you know, he's kind of behind the scenes pulling the strings, and you don't know where his loyalties lie. I just want to highlight that I think the way the Ross character is executed is very just cool because, as you indicated, Tasha, he doesn't have any like. It's not like. Uh, Cohen gives Ross any lines that weren't his, although he is the third unnamed assassin in this movie, in the play, he's unnamed. And then the final scene in the movie also goes to Ross, which obviously is not in the play either because there's no dialogue. So it's just kind of cool that they're like, hey, how can we insert a character without changing any of the dialogue? Pretty cool way to do it. Okay, anyway. And also imply that maybe he killed Lady Macbeth by pushing her down the stairs. Yeah, that also struck me as a very (laughs) bold choice. I maybe would have liked that underlined slightly more. But in a in a play where it's always been just sort of a little weird, as I say, that we go from, uh, hey, she's like super pro murder to, hey, she went mad because uh, she was all pro murder to, oh, by the way, she killed herself off screen while we weren't looking to have that implication <laughs> that, oh, no, she didn't. Uh, somebody just decided that it was uh, it was time and she was vulnerable. I, I think that's a real bold choice right there. And I think it's one that really serves the story well. Agreed, agreed 100% with everything Tasha mm-hmm. said. What do you think, Scott? Wow. I would have to like rewind or whatever or do what uh, it, it watch that again because I, I did I missed I missed that uh, element of it's of it, it's not uh, heavily underlined. It's just yeah, it's it, it is yeah. pretty subtle. He's there so, yeah. and that's the problem. I miss all. The, I want the like the bold touches in there. And he's <laughs> doing all the subtle hand. stuff. You got five thousand arrows <laughs> in a shot in rapid succession. I mean, I'm, I, so, yeah, I put the, the suppose he could have stuck in a uh, a Poochie style frame where Ross is saying, "I'm about Ross to murder died on her." The way back to his home planet, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about to murder her. Here's yeah. me murdering her. Here's me after murdering her. Here's her having been murdered. <laughs> <laughs> just something. Well, something that's clear on the action. I mean, it's a pretty consequential thing to just like, just to, to you have to do better. I I need to be able to see that it happened. I got to say, handheld. You got to you got to make sure that Scott Tobias knows what's going on in your movie. Um, you know, doesn't miss it when he sees it. But um, I, I promise that after the break, I'll I will not be talking in, in, in third person. We'll we'll dig in more to Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth. fantastical or that indeed which outwardly you show if you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not speak then to me who neither beg nor fear your favor nor your hate lesser than Macbeth and greater not so happy yet much happier 
thou shalt get kings, though thou be none. So all hail Macbeth and Banquo, Banquo and Macbeth. All hail. Stay you imperfect speakers, tell me more. I know I am Thane of Gloms, but how of Cordor? The Thane of Cordor lives. A prosperous gentleman, and to be king stands not within the prospect of belief. Say from whence you owe this strange intelligence, or why upon this blasted heath you stop our way with such prophetic greeting. So I, I want to kind of get in a little bit more to the age thing, because again, you're, you're, you're convincing me on some of this stuff. Ross, you know, maybe their ages, maybe there's some, some things in this film that I missed, uh, and the significance, uh, obviously casting a- actors of uh, a certain age is uh, a choice. Uh, so what about that choice? I mean, for me, it just changes the story so much in terms of, you know, cheating a little bit here with, with connections. Throne of Blood giving the couple a a child on the way gives them a sudden reason to want to preserve their their lineage. It gives our Macbeth equivalent a desire to preserve his own line and and his own family heritage and and see his hopeful, theoretical uh, son on the throne someday. He still jumps the gun. I mean, come on. But that said... Making them older, making them a a childless couple who are pretty clearly past childbearing age means they're murdering the person who could be their successor with no plan of succession. They're just killing these people in order to maybe pretend that they're going to live forever. They're killing these people out of a fear of maybe being prematurely hustled off their throne themselves as they hustled a Duncan off the throne. It becomes much less about, you know, any kind of monarchical concern about the monarchy or about the land, the country, continuity, family, and just becomes a, a selfish you know, dogs sitting in the manger, keeping other people away kind of thing. And it I think it just really changes the tenor of how we feel about these characters. Yeah, I'm going to uh, steal an observation from uh, Alison Wilmore, uh, former guest and friend of the show, uh, who in her review uh, puts it as childless and with no chance of establishing a legacy of any sort. Macbeth murders his way to the throne of Scotland out of what feels much more openly like nihilism than ambition, as though he's looked ahead toward a dwindling future, promising few surprises and chosen violence instead. The Macbeth of the film barely needs the prophecies of the witches to push him toward regicide. And I, I think like reading it as nihilism is really interesting, again, especially in the context of Throne of Blood, which uh, we kind of talked about as being very bleak in its uh, view of the cycle of humanity's violence and whatnot. But isn't the difference, though, that Kurosawa himself is be expressing his own kind of nihilistic point of view? Mm-hmm. Whereas in this this film, you, you, Macbeth himself and Lady Macbeth are nihilists, sure. right? Uh, um, I mean that, that that seems like a pretty pretty big difference. I mean, there's there's nothing. Right. I mean, they're consciously just you know. But as a thematic I mean, why, why, replacement I mean, why, for ambition, I guess is is yeah. why is where I'm. It's going like with an, it. it's like an empty, destructive ambition. I mean, just like what what is the vision here? What is <laughs> what is the, what are they what what is being built? It's just it feels like. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm literally, it's not even a rhetorical question. I'm actually curious, like, why? Why why are they doing this? 
I think that we maybe should hold that one for connections because it's a problem that every Macbeth has to contend with, I think, is just the question of why any of them are doing this. You know, they're they're doing it for power, but they've already been promised power. They're doing it for their future, uh, for their own self-aggrandizement on some level. But why do they want that? I think it's very different for both of them. Not just in relationship to the play and and themselves, but in relationship with each other. I think it's different in every interpretation, and that's an interesting thing. But David, you were the one that brought up the the age of the characters. I'm I'm curious how you interpret what it changes or what it brings to this version. Yeah, all the stuff that you said, I think, is just kind of you're viewing it from a different perspective. The idea that that. There is no legacy, and it, it really calls into question like why they're really doing it. But I think it's more it's more like they see the ascension to the throne as the as the end in and of itself. You know, like this this is the legacy that we never got to have. Like we gave up the ability to have heirs. You know, it's like it's like feels like this is a couple that uh, they elected not to have children or you know or because they didn't have children they basically were like okay we got to pour all of our efforts into this kind of final act uh there's there's a more sick desperation to it i think in mm-hmm. this one than than potentially in in other versions of it so and yeah you get i mean really it's just feels in I'm saying all this, and at the same time, it's like it just does kind of feel like an excuse to have two older but also very talented actors play these characters. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is that yeah. thing. I like. I, I definitely feel like the casting came from these are the actors he wants in the role, as opposed exactly. to, and so any any understanding of what it means to these characters kind of has to be back justified. Like, I, I, I don't think. But, well, that. That said, that said, the uh, language of the play is changed. You know, like they did change one line in the movie, I think, um, from the original. Uh, in, in the original play, it's something like, you know, you should bear like only boys or something like that. But then in this version, he's like, you should have born only boys or something along those lines. So they, you know, and I know that's like, oh, he changed two words out of like 50,000. But it's, you know, it is significant the fact that those are the only words that are changed. And they did acknowledge that. There is a difference with these characters. But yes, at the same time, you're right. It does kind of feel like, you know, the casting drove some of the creative decisions. But, you know, that's true of many movies. It's true. So, yeah. I definitely don't mean it as a huge knock against it. I, I maybe more mean that it might be fruitless to to spend too much uh, gas on, yeah. on figuring out exactly <laughs> what all it means to the characters when maybe what it means to the characters is these are the actors they, they chose for it. Yeah. I, here's another point. Scott Tobias mm-hmm. is yes. uh, so. Here's something else that surprised me. I'm curious what you thought of this. Is uh, this Macbeth is really violent, and what I mean by that is, oh yeah, your beloved violence. <laughs> you do love violence. I, I've no. seen, I've seen, like you know, that. several versions of Macbeth, and uh, I don't recall seeing the killings as graphically depicted as they are here. Some of that good old Coen Brothers ultra violence. The, the Polanski um, version is very bloody. This is okay. the third. This is these. This is the third most violent one I've seen. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> this, this would be this would be behind both Polanski and Kurzel. Uh, Kurzel's movie is super violent. I don't yeah, know if you've seen. Yeah, it. I, I have seen. I have seen both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So but, so so they 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 are pretty violent. But compared and, and to and Throne a, of Blood, you see, and also most versions of the yeah, play that I've seen in real life, they often don't show arrows sticking out of his uh, chest. But right. Yeah. But they, what, what what I mean <laughs> is um, specifically the murder of Duncan. You know. Like, yeah. I feel like. Oh yeah. Many yeah. Re- versions of it 
I don't see him actually kill Duncan. And in mm-hmm. this one, they showed it, and it's a rather brutal slaying, in my opinion. Yeah, he kind of like gives him a moment to like wake up and like register what's going on. Yeah, it feels and, a lot more vengeful. It feels a lot more personal yeah. than yes. than some of these yes. versions. Yeah. Yes. And, and, the, and, and yeah, I mean, the, and there's some real horror in the movie too. The whole business, right? If I'm getting it right, Lady Macduff and her kids, and the way that's handled too is also quite. Mm. Am I getting that right? Yeah, when they the place gets burned down, and that's the when child you're is yes, thrown exactly. into the yeah, fire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, nothing like the Polanski, which which is done as like a home invasion, much like Sharon, you know, Sharon Tate. I mean, that was a very uh, you can't you really can't top that for being absolutely disturbing. But but it is it is violent, and and I you know I did, I did and this maybe leads to another question I have for the the group is that is that you know auteurist that I am I I do look to see you know what makes this a, a cohen film i mean this is what's the cohen touch here i mean it can't be in the dialogue <laughs> uh really uh because that that has uh been retained maybe in the rhythm of the dialogue that maybe that is something that's coheny uh, in the themes like where where is joel cohen in this movie and in what kind of connections would you would you might would you make, I guess, to his and his brother's uh, previous work? I, I absolutely think it's in Ross. I think that in, uh, I wrote a, a massive essay, I think for the Dissolve, about ethics and morals in the Coen Brothers films, because I really think that that's what connects them, is that they they kind of tend to have two branches of their, their films. They're the films where people make terrible choices and pay harshly for them. Sometimes people make choices that aren't even so terrible. A simple man comes to mind. But people deviate from the moral path that they've laid out for themselves, and they're terribly punished for it uh, by a, a vicious cosmos. And then there are the comedies, the, the sometimes very dark comedies, where people make horrible choices and do horrible things and aren't punished for them. And we see that the universe has no center. I burn after reading is maybe the the <laughs> loudest of those, but it happens quite a bit. This is one of the moralistic ones, you know, necessary because of the text where people make dark choices and and pay for them with their lives. But the character of Ross just has a, a feeling of a Cohen con man. You know, he's sneaking carefully behind the scenes, making all of these these sharp decisions and sharp choices. And he can't be a, a wordy motor mouth like a lot of the uh, the con artists in, in Cohen movies. But he's absolutely the glum, dark criminal who is playing both ends against the middle in some way. And that that strikes me as just a, a Coen Brothers touch of, you know, kind of loving the heist movie, kind of loving the guy getting away with things or, or trying to get away with things. And we don't fully find out in the end how his schemes pay off, which I think is just a necessary part of the structure because of what we're working with here. But I, I think if this was a, a Coen written film, we would definitely find where uh where Ross ends up as a result of all of his uh, his manipulations and chicanery. First of all, be- wonderfully put, Tasha. Scott, uh, the following yes. is said with tongue planted firmly in cheek, <laughs> but I would argue I could associate almost any Coen Brothers film with the tragedy of Macbeth. Uh-huh. Raising Arizona. Fast-paced farce about an unlikely pair who go to extreme lengths to have a child. I mean, <laughs> I don't know about you, but that sounds like the plot of this movie. Burn After Reading, you already referenced it, uh, Tasha, but I'm reading from the plot summary. Predictably, events whirl out of control for the duo of doofuses and those in their orbit. 
inside Lewin Davis. Just one guy working hard after many decades trying to get his big break. I mean, <laughs> if these okay. aren't if these aren't all references to the tragedy of Macbeth, Scott, I don't know what it wow. is. Now see, now you you just you want you're you're making me want You've done it, a musical version of this Macbeth. Uh, Adam Driver has to show up to sing a duet with Ross. Uh, it's gonna be great. I'm looking forward to it. Wow. F- Fargo, Francis McDormand plays a criminal mastermind. No, I'm <laughs> that one's a little you harder know, to stretch, but yeah. I'm gonna say a couple of th- things ab- about the, the, the connections here. One is that is that you could almost make this in you know because the Coens are always uh, about they're very neat filmmakers they, they everything in, in its right place with them you could almost make this a last film because it, it, it so neatly bookends blood simple you know Francis McDormand is obviously in both both movies but but the whole out damn spot thing that's such an essential part of blood simple because if you you recall there's a there's a very long scene where where they're trying to just get blood cleaned up and it's just impossible because it's blood and there's a lot of scrubbing involved you know it is extremely evocative of of macbeth so there's that you know and of course you know and with that blood and and what it symbolizes uh you know uh the, the guilt and and also a certain amount of like amateurism you know these are people who are not uh, killers by 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 nature they well, they're not professionals and and uh and Cohen brothers are filled with people with non-professionals committing crimes and and uh it not going well because they don't know what they're doing the man who wasn't there guess, francis mcdormand is married to a guy <laughs> who commits a crime and doesn't know what he's doing also in black and white okay i'll stop yeah i mean no, actually yeah stop. the this black and white of course <laughs> they're they're it's all there it's all there the other thing too is 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 how with macbeth and then also with the the Coens, it's like it's like when you take that first step, when you commit to immoral criminal act, things spin out of control. It, it, you know, there's there ends up being an amount of loss that is not calculated and is incalculable that bodies pile up, you know, I mean, that's how, you know, so, so we're something like, you know, if, with Fargo, of course, most famously with the with just this kind of phony kidnapping scheme that isn't supposed to harm anybody ends up you know with a, a tremendously high body count and this you know again you know burn after reading of course has plenty of bodies as well in one of the dumbest schemes you, <laughs> you'll ever see in a movie and, and uh, the tragedy you know, with beth their scheme is only to kill one person and they end up right. killing a bunch <laughs> yeah exactly so 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 the, the connective tissue is there i mean again I, you know uh, we'll argue i guess if we want in, in terms of like uh whether certain Cohen films had a stronger impact on me than this one but you know it, it does feel like like this is um an almost a return to first principles movie for Joel Cohen and you, you at least get quite explicitly stated that Macbeth is like a foundational text for a lot of the s- films that they have made well put so, I think one of the most interesting elements of Macbeth just as a concept is this idea of like predestination you know and he gets this prophecy and then the prophecy causes him to commit all this stuff. And, you know, would he have done it if he didn't get the prophecy? You know, probably not. And so like, it's almost like if if I'm to take any message from these films, it's like knowing the future is like, can be a trap in some way. Right. Like anyway, it's almost like those prophecies were handed to them by 
uh, creatures of chaos, creatures of uh, mm-hmm. perhaps representing some sort of evil, perhaps representing that uh, knowing the future and trying to seize it for yourself is some sort of evil. I'm just going to suggest that that's something I want to talk about. Both movies uh, contend with that idea, which might be a, a, a hint. Scott Tobias. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, you're, not, you, you're not hosting the show. This is me. I am, um, however, I, going I, I to prophesy it. It. that in the near future, immediately right. after you take control of Fort One, Scott Tobias, you're going to uh, pass I'm, us into I'm going to wrap up the discussion. All right. <laughs> well, we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between the tragedy of Macbeth and Throne of Blood. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, Tasha is uh, David was uh, I think alluding to something that you wanted to talk about. What yeah, was that? I mean he he read my mind here. He's he's just like uh, three steps ahead of me. Like he's or, or the script. Or, also the script. No, I might have a glimpse of the show I'm, notes. I'm have. definitely leaning in the direction of uh, David is some kind of witch who was trying to <laughs> force my hand. Or maybe three witches in yeah. one. Yeah, fair, I can't. Fair. Where he's yeah. sitting at his desk, I can't see his feet. It's possible that there are you know two more David Chens below him, even as we speak. It's true. I'm actually just three small David Chens in a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> that Ari, that's how you get so much done. That's how you manage your schedule. Suddenly, it all makes so much more sense. I really wish I'd known that before I went and killed the king. All right, what are you going to say, Tasha? Let's 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 get on with it. So every we said no more shenanigans. Uh, no, that's true. We we don't have the shenanigans at the front of the show, and now so they've 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 been organically sprinkled throughout the episode. But go ahead. I can't talk. I've got a big mouthful of uh, shenanigans sprinkles. I think that every Macbeth has to contend with the question of would he have done it if he not would he have done it if he hadn't gotten the prophecy? Because I don't think that question is as interesting. And it's also just, you know, it's not part of the story. It's not germane to the story. The question is, would it have all happened if he didn't take the actions that he takes? He doesn't set out to become, you know, Thane of Cawdor. He doesn't set out to take control of, uh, you know, a fort in uh, in either of these stories. But he's told it's going to happen. And he's like, yeah, that'll be the day. In both cases, also kind of saying, ooh, power, that would be that would be nifty if somebody was to just, you know, hand me a fort or dukedom or what have you. But then both of these characters and and pretty much every Macbeth really just takes on the baggage for themselves of, well, that previous thing happened. So the other thing has to happen too. And then of course, none of them just sit back and let it happen. And it's because of Lady Macbeth's interference saying, you know, you, you can't just, just wait and see if this happens. We, we have to go forward in the, the bloodiest and most direct way possible. And I think just something you have to contend with in every Macbeth is the route to get there and the reluctance of the Macbeth involved. I mean, we, we've heard about how Throne of Blood is not a psychological story. So all of the psychology has to come from Lady Macbeth pushing in this very, you have to, you have to take these actions to preserve our family and our legacy and our lives. In the Cohen version, it just feels much more like we're old and I'm impatient. If you if you don't get about it, how long is this going to take? And I think one of the things that interests me most often in interpretations of Macbeth 
is how reluctant they make Macbeth to act on the prophecy or to act because of the prophecy and how they justify this kind of like chicken and egg circularity of would he have become king eventually if he hadn't gone about it the wrong way? Would would the prophecy have been fulfilled if he hadn't tried to act to fulfill the prophecy? And it's like, you know, telling time travel stories, that particular kind of intricacy that that which came first, that how do you motivate a person to do a thing, I think is always kind of the focus of and and the interesting part of the story. But I'm curious what everybody thinks about I guess, kind of the way it falls out in these two movies in terms of how our uh, reluctant Macbeth is is pushed into doing a thing that theoretically, based on what they've seen so far, they don't necessarily have to do anything in order to achieve. They just have to sit back and let fate happen. I think uh, the reference to time travel is a really good one because it does feel like how we've seen some time travel movies play out where knowing what is supposed to happen becomes a trap, becomes this kind of monster that you're facing because you've seen what the future is going to be or you know how it's supposed to play out. You better make it play out that way or else something terrible will happen, you know, or, and you don't know what it is. But uh, probably the example that comes to mind most prominently for me is uh, Nacho Vigalando's Time Crimes. Time Crimes, that's like, exactly what I was thinking yes, of. Where he like, this guy, normal dude, normal dude, he like finds out what's supposed to happen in the future and then does increasingly terrible things in order to make the future actually happen like it's supposed to. It is interesting to compare the mm-hmm. two in this case, right? And I think that in the other, uh, sorry, in Throne of Blood, it's interesting because basically she's like, like Lady Macbeth in that movie, uh, Asaji is like, if you if you don't act, you might die because your friend is going to kill you. And I know like Lady Macbeth has her own machinations and tragedy to Macbeth, but like it, it felt more like harm reduction in Throne of Blood as opposed to like you know uh, actually like driving towards a goal as it was in Tragedy of Macbeth. That's how I'd compare it. If that makes any sense. I think that that makes perfect sense in terms of the the Macbeth figure's motivation. I'm not sure that I believe uh, in Throne of Blood that that the wife actually believes anything that she's saying about hmm. what Miki might do. I right, no, no, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Okay, yeah. so it, she she's framing it as loss. I put it that way. She's framing it as harm reduction, right? Yeah. But uh, probably she also has her own ambitions, right? Yeah, so. I would say for herself and uh, yeah. for their their theoretical children. Yeah. Well, and the reason she's able to do that is something I think that's important to note in, in case of both of these films is that this is a shared prophecy. They're not delivered just to Macbeth. They're also delivered to Banquo and then Macbeth shares them with his, his wife. So there's never really a point at which he has the option to not act on it. And Throne of Blood makes that very explicit with the scene that you were talking about, David. Tragedy of Macbeth, like, it goes a more traditional route in sort of placing the action, the control or whatever in Lady Macbeth's hands. It, like Macbeth kind of like delivers the prophecy unto her and then she becomes the actor. But because there are there's like more than one person involved in this prophecy, it's like just because there is more than one person involved in this prophecy, like as soon as it's out there, there's never the option for it to not start this chain of events in motion. But there, mm-hmm. there, there mm-hmm. totally is, though. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to overpraise this Shakespeare guy, but he's a pretty good writer. You know, the the construction of the story is is pretty damn good. <laughs> there was always the option to say, hey, I I got 
what you said I would get. Now, next, I'm going to get this other thing. Let's kick back and let me become the rightful king under rightful circumstances. And then, like, let my best friend's kid uh, become king. And we can we can spend the rest of our lives, like, training him to be a good king. The aspect of it being a shared prophecy, I think, is is one of the things that just really makes the story. Because in both cases here, Lady Macbeth basically convinces Macbeth, you have to murder your liege. You have to betray everything that that our society stands for in terms of like loyalty and fealty and murder somebody that you care about a lot. So because that's the only way for you to get what you've been promised uh, by the supernatural. Now, at the same time, you have to also act to murder your best friend so he doesn't get what he was promised. You know, it's it's not just about uh, hubris. It's not just uh, pride and wrath and and killing the person that you're supposed to protect. It's also about just the incredible selfish greed of I will break all my morals to get what I want and then break any remaining morals to make sure you don't get what you want. Interesting thing to note about uh, Throne of Blood is it does kind of entertain the nonviolent option when he mm-hmm. talks about making Miki his Miki's mm, son yeah. son his own heir, and then his wife makes that a, a, a non-option with her her announcement. Yeah, but, which but, you in, know, in the moment felt like a manipulation, but I guess yes, it was, did. It was I, did. I, I was surprised surprised that it actually was something that happened. But it's also hubris in a, in, you know, you were saying it's not just about hubris, but I think hubris is a big part of it because in both cases, it's about, we've just seen this creature in the woods and the creature has said, these things are going to happen. And then the things happen. And then Macbeth in both, the Macbeth character in both cases is like, well, what if they're wrong about that one last mm-hmm. thing, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, and it's, it's ultimately about like him thinking he can like beat fate mm-hmm. in some way right and and failing horribly or or being not smart enough to realize that he can't beat fate you know like wh- whatever whether it's uh, incompetence or malice you know it's about like a character who really wants to to take his fate into his own hands and fails and i think that's true in both both ver- versions that we see on the screen yeah i i totally agree there i do think it's interesting that because of the way kurosawa specifically sets up the story Traditionally, it it seems like the big betrayal of morals that Macbeth commits is murdering his king, you know, murdering the man that he's supposed to be loyal to, murdering the man that he just went to war on behalf of, you know, in in both Japanese and British tradition, the idea of like loyalty to your leader is a a very strong and and fundamental part of uh, a medieval society. But Kurosawa kind of shifts that, you know, there's there's the line about, hey, you know, kings always come to power power by murdering the last king. It's no big deal. Uh, The king that you're about to murder. I mean, he murdered his way to the top. Why shouldn't you? And it's it's treated almost as no big deal, uh, despite like fealty and loyalty being such a huge, huge part of Japanese uh, traditions and stories. In Kurosawa's case, the the bond there that's being broken is the bond between brothers. He, he repeatedly talks about Miki as his best friend, as the man who never fails in loyalty to him. I mean, when the prince shows up and says, the general murdered my father, like, like let us in, I'm the rightful heir now, Miki just immediately has people shoot arrows at him and send him away. When, you know, when his old buddy shows up at the gates, he opens the doors and lets him in, whether he's doing it for the general or for, for the old lord's body is 
you know, sort of beside the point. But there's that loyalty between brothers in the Kurosawa that is a thread of Macbeth, but it's one that's usually not emphasized over the the loyalty that you owe to your lord. I just I think that that's an interesting twist on the story. So the question, you know, uh, oftentimes with adaptations of Shakespeare on screen is is why now? Uh, uh, why you know why did Kurosawa decide to make Throne of Blood when when he did? Why at this stage of his career? Did Joel Cohen decide to do the tragedy of Macbeth? And so that's the question I guess I have for you. Um, though I will say, I think for Kurosawa, and I, and I talked about this a little bit in the keynote, there was a pessimism, an extreme pessimism backed up by recent history about what happens when when weak, uh, dangerous men come to power in a, in a bloody and ambitious fashion and, and uh, so all sorts of... Uh, uh, tragedy. I mean, I think uh, you know, and I, and I think that that informed a lot of cinema of the time. Uh, uh, Kurosawa himself had has had made some film noir movies. Uh, there's a little bit. There are some noir elements here in, in Throne of Blood. Um, so you can maybe talk about that it being in that sort of post-war tradition. This version of of Macbeth, his take on Macbeth, and also just his point of view on the play, which is which is somehow darker than than even uh, Shakespeare himself uh, managed. But why? Uh, so that maybe that's my interpretation of of Kurosawa's why now? Uh, why now for Joel Cohen? Just because? Because it was there? <laughs> well, I mean, I think you kind of broke it or we, I guess, but mostly you, Scott, kind of broke it down at the end of our, our main conversation, th- this episode of like, it's a return to principles for him. And like, this is a movie that he's making without his brother, who is like, maybe not making films anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I'm not going to try to get inside his head too much, but I think just like on, on its... I don't actually think you need to. I yeah. think he's made specific oh, statements okay. about this. All right. Well, please, I, I haven't read them. So it sounds like you've done your research there. So, Gosh, it's been a little while. If I remember correctly, it was actually predicated by a version of Macbeth that uh, McDormand was going to be in. Uh, I would have to look that up, but there was... There was definitely a, a predicating event that was not, uh, yeah, she, you know, she, I've, I've been waiting my whole life and that was the time. She asked to direct a stage version of it and he said no, but I would be interested in doing a filmed one. Um, That's what it was. so it started to like come together. But, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're asking like, you know, why now? I, I guess I just feel like the uh, plot line of a murderous, overambitious, sort of mid-tier... <laughs> Uh, would-be politician uh, just feels like it is generally resonant <laughs> and uh, throughout <laughs> you know human history and uh, and continues to uh, still have relevance today one might say yeah I, I mean that's true I mean there's there is there will unfortunately due to just the very nature of mankind uh, will be uh, a see it will always be Macbeth season somewhere yes, yes agreed but yeah I, I think that uh, Genevieve's you know I'm being a little bit silly but I think Genevieve's comments are also very true that like this does feel like you know the the ultimate of uh, Coen Brothers movies and also you we didn't really talk about this during our ta- conversation about tragedy and Macbeth but I think the tragedy of Macbeth and Macbeth as a play is like kind of hilarious at times. You know what I mean? Like in a, in a very Coen Brothers esque way. Example uh, like that Stephen Root scene. We Stephen didn't even Root talk scene. about that. <laughs> There's a scene with Ross where he's like, "Yo, like, um, how's my wife and kid? 
uh, they were doing great when I last saw yeah. them, wink, wink. <laughs> you know, and, you know, just like, and there's just this humor, this dark humor that I feel like is, it kind of permeates a lot of Coen Brothers movies that I think felt very at home with this Macbeth, so. Wasn't like a, was a, a drier laughter than uh, potentially we've gotten from them before. From, uh, not, before. I wouldn't say it's the Raising Arizona of Shakespeare, you know? <laughs> it's not the Big Lebowski of Shakespeare, but, you know, maybe, well, maybe you know, a serious it's, it's interesting because, I mean, Shakespeare kind of famously worked in two modes, you know, tragedy and comedy. And that is a kind of a dichotomy that the Coen brothers have worked in throughout their their career, too. But yeah, but the, where, are, serious... where are the Coen brothers' great historical movies? I... <laughs> but they have the, the Coens, even even their serious stuff is is funny. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like. This is the least funny. I, I mean, you, I gotta again, say, you this can is the say least the I, same of Shakespeare what, with all the This dick is the jokes. least I've laughed I've, <laughs> in a Coen Brothers film, I have to say, uh, by by some margin. I really? Not, you, don't, not, you don't think it's funny? I did not yuck funny. it up during this film. You don't think it's funny that like the witches are like, look, you are going to stay on the throne until or unless <laughs> this huge forest like happens to come towards this castle. And it's like... Oh well, that's never gonna happen. Obviously, <laughs> I, that's always my favorite. That is always my favorite part. That is, I do like that particular part. There's no part way. Of, How is that even possible? That doesn't no, make any please. sense. What it's you're saying? It's a forest. It's a forest. What about, the, what about the part where Macbeth is like, okay, whatever. I like, I pity you. You're gonna die here because I can't be killed by somebody born of woman. Right. And then Macbeth's like, oh, hey, by the way. And then Macbeth's like. Well, shit. Uh, <laughs> guess we're doing. You like, probably okay, wonder you how back up. It's like, it's like can you talk about <laughs> b- b- before you noise. before you attack me? Could you please talk about the circumstances of your birth? This is really important for, <laughs> uh, for me to know. Just, uh, to know just this check one in. Detail, just, just yes. I, I just want to know my level of what my level of concern should be. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, just, on, I like to ask the everybody improbable... I meet if they were of woman born. That's, yes. that's just, it's it, one of my little It's quirks. the Anton Chigurh haircut of Tragedy of Macbeth. <laughs> you know, uh, just a very funny element that just sprinkled right in there. So Yeah, that's true. You don't need, you don't need, uh, the, uh, the, uh, Joel Cohn does not need to put any spin on the ball. It's right there yes. in Shakespeare. Indeed, indeed. I, now, see, now I'm trying to think of, of German expressionist comedies. I mean, you, you've, you've definitely got your, mm. your young Frankensteins, like your, your <laughs> movies. That's a little that... past German expressionism, though. That's hey. the 70s. Uh, you're saying referencing the uh, time. Uh, yeah, I mean, just in terms of, um, you know, comedies that uh, take on a little of the, the cinematography or, or the setting. But like mm. German expressionism, I just think of as a very uh, towering and and humorless and, and somber and oppressive genre. Like that's all of those elements are kind of part of what it is. So it is kind of difficult to imagine like the Porter scene here feels like a nod to like, yeah, this also happens to be a play with a lot of dick jokes, but you know, they, they cut that character down to about three lines worth of dick jokes and then, then move him off stage. And it feels like a weird interlude. You know, it doesn't really feel like it fits. Mm. Tasha won't watch any movies unless they have minimum four dick jokes, I think is what we're learning. <laughs> anyway. I, I mean, I rate all movies with like little dick emojis yes. just on a scale of no dicks to five dicks. I gotta say between Oh no, between... I, I had I would I had a very, very graphic one specifically designed for myself. <laughs> oh, I think the eggplant thing okay. is just a 
kind of a waste of everybody's right. time. Immature. Noted. I did not expect all of the dick stuff or the Mitchells versus Machines <laughs> references in this set of episodes. Well, you know, when Dave comes on the podcast, it's time the, to the conversation. The conversation is just gone. Yes. I don't know. A little low Scott, brow. we actually scripted another thirty minutes of dick jokes. Yeah. Joel Cohen made us cut it down to just this segment that we've just had. Yes. That's it. Yes. That's all you're getting. Much like he's made you, he circumcised it then a little bit. Yes. A snip, a little snipping. Wow. Happened there. Okay. We're, we're, oh dear lord. We're gonna have to put the explicit tag on this one. <laughs> we're also going to have to put the shenanigans back at the top of the show because we're, we're getting loopy without them. It's pretty bad. All right, it's getting, it's get, we're getting, uh, we're getting sidetracked. We're getting, bring us back, uh, Genevieve Koski. Okay. Well, I was, uh, Tasha, uh, you brought up German expressionism, which uh, I, I thought uh, before all the dick jokes that you were going to transition us into talking about the the styles of these yes. uh, two two films. So Scott, you you have a yes. you, you have the connection here on our little show notes as minimalist and maximalist style, and I'm curious if you are interpreting that as one film as minimalist and one as uh-huh. maximalist, or both yes. films having both minimalist and maximalist components. Oh, because no, I was thinking I was thinking more that the the Cohen was surprisingly. I, I would not have thought the Cohen would be the minimalist one here but it is a little more stripped down uh where the kurosawa is quite uh aggressive in comparison stylistically i mean like sure visually on its surface like uh tragedy of macbeth is it's stark like i think that's like the the main word you 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 want to use to describe but like to to david's earlier point like it never reuses a a set (laughs) you know like i think like this is maximalist minimalism if if that's the Mm. thing like i I think maybe abstracted is maybe more the maybe relatively speaking i guess with regard to the cohen's it's restrained it's not because you do expect a certain a, a, a really aggressive stylization from them that is not as present here as mm-hmm. uh, my, I might have expected, but go ahead. Yeah. Really? I mean, I just, I you see all of these characters lurking around in these spaces that look like 14 stories tall and, and have no ceilings and are divided into stark black and white angles. I mean, it, it, this feels very maximalist to me, not all, at all in the performances, um, but it's all in the set. It's all in mm-hmm. the design. It's all in the spaces that they're in, uh, which are d- just very loud very dramatic and and very big mm-hmm. though again it's like it, you know the uh, wells kind of got there <laughs> first on all this stuff like <laughs> the wells is way more of a exp- german expressionist film in my opinion in terms of like the the the, the sets are wild in that one too but like this uh, the, the the shadow play is much more present in the in in the wells and and it's not as gray uh, i mean tragedy macbeth has kind of like like kind of a gray hazy foggy black and white whereas there's a more of a high contrast black and white happening both in the uh wells version and i think just in as a german expressionist tradition generally i mean i think you see german expression kind of informing that kind of single source noir lighting scheme and i just i don't really see the tragedy of Macbeth isn't necessarily be taking on that influence, which is not really necessarily to say that it's got no style. It's just a different style, I guess. I think it's interesting that in both cases, first of all, these are both black and white movies that are in four by three aspect ratio, right? Weird coincidence, but also it obviously has like different impact because we're viewing them in different, like theoretically they're meant to be viewed in different time periods. In the case of, Throne of Blood, you know, and also Tragedy of Macbeth, they, they, they each draw attention to their artificiality in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. We talked earlier about Throne of Blood and the no style and the, these kind of 
very overly exaggerated facial expressions and this kind of specificity of movement. And in the tragedy of Macbeth, it's all about production design. It's about the fact that it's in black and white and in four by three, which is like not typical, uh, you know, compared to like the Kurtzel version is just like, that is extremely naturalistic compared to like what we see here. Right. And so yeah. it, it is interesting that in both cases, it does feel like the filmmakers want to draw your attention to the fact like this is a construct, right? This is not, you know, a documentary of it. You can't mistake this for reality in any way. And they use the language mm. of film to like heighten uh, what is trying to be conveyed. So, yeah, that was actually one of Keith's problems with the Kurzel version is, is the, uh, that the attempt to be naturalistic sort of trampled on the language, yes. oh. which is not, which is, 100%. Uh, which I, I get, which I get, yeah. but also I, it also just kind of kicks ass from a filmic perspective in a lot of, in at least certain scenes. Agreed. Um, Agreed. But I get it. I get it. Just as sort of a, a sub point to this style, and, and David already kind of kind of brought it up, but the fact that these are both black and white films, but one is digital black and white, and again, that is a strong choice that that Cohen made here, and was made apparently from a, a brief interview I read with cinematographer Bruno Delbonnel that the choice to film it in black and white was to heighten that abstraction feel like he says that just black and white naturally brings with it a level of abstraction it disconnects you from reality in interesting ways and I think Kurosawa does the same thing you know we it's not as abstracted but it does feel a little disconnected from our reality mm-hmm. and the black and white does contribute to that but i think uh it was more just a matter of fact <laughs> because of the time period in which uh he was working rather than a, a specific choice uh that cohen made also really appreciated not adding any uh artificial film grain to it like just re- mm. really like letting the digital black and white be as stark as it actually is oh yeah <laughs> i do not like that at all you don't like I don't when they like, add I don't, digital grain. No. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't like it when they shoot it digitally at all. But but I certainly don't like it when they try to make it look like it's film when it's yeah. not. <laughs> like do fake a fake like like uh grain. That doesn't that I I don't like that at all. I don't hate but, it on principle, like, but uh, I'm really glad it wasn't used here because I think no. it, it looked that really like glossy black and white uh really heightens the, the no, look. It's a good looking yeah. film. Yeah. This one is. despite being shot digitally which you don't approve of it's a handsome production oh heaven scott you're such a purist (laughs) we dragged it out of you (laughs) i I have one other observation i'm curious what you might think of this but i do feel like the way the movies end um and kind of thematically is is quite different and you know uh I'm, i'm kind of pondering it right the idea behind throne of blood very pessimistic. It's it's very much like the cycle of violence continues, right? Uh, there is no hope to be found here. Abandon all hope, ye who enter. <laughs> basically, like there there is no assurance that whoever is coming next is going to be any better, or that anyone's coming next. You know, like th- that's yeah. how it ends. Whereas, uh, tragedy Macbeth also ends differently than the original play Macbeth. It ends with. Ross riding off with Fleance into the into the distance, right? And again, really interesting way to end it. But it, like the the feeling I am left with 
at the end of Tragedy of Macbeth is like, this guy was the real dude the whole time. Like, this guy was the one pulling the strings the whole time. And like, that basically, like, there's these people, there's people who are like behind the people that we think of as like, you know, the greatest heroes or the greatest villains that are like doing all these underhanded things that we might never even have access to or know about. So I guess I feel like they're, now that I'm saying it out loud, they're pessimistic about humanity in different ways. At the same yeah. time, I think both of them still end in the in the same way in the sense that both of them let us know that you you can't escape fate. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yes. our our Japanese version of the story, he acted against his lord and he fell because of it in the the Cohen version. This was prophesied and presumably Fleance's uh, carry being carried off to eventually become king, you know, yes. to, to fulfill yes. what we've expected. So right. in both cases, it may be cynical. It, it may be bitter. Uh, it, it may not have a whole lot of hope for the future, but there is also just sort of that, that sense that trying to force some parts of a prophecy to happen and other parts not to happen just is not going to work out for you. Yes. Or, or to quote another Coen Brothers film, you can't stop what's coming. Seems like a good place to end. To me, the 1957 film Throne of Blood is up on the Criterion channel with a bunch of extras, including a commentary track. It's also on HBO Max. The Tragedy of Macbeth (laughs) is on Apple TV Plus, where you can find Ted Lasso and other (laughs) Ted Lasso, (laughs) other things that are not Ted Lasso, uh, are also on Apple TV. Scott. (laughs) Wolfwalker is still an exclusive on Boy State. Boy State's there. Yeah, uh, 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 Mythic Quest. A lot of things that you can watch on this uh, channel. Tra- uh, Tragedy Macbeth is now one of them. <laughs> That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with a new pairing. Genevieve, what do we have on tap for February 15th and 22nd? Well, Valentine's Day will have just passed when we kick off this pairing, but rom-com season will still be in full force, thanks to the new Jennifer Lopez starring Marry Me, in which Lopez stars as one half of a celebrity power couple that dissolves suddenly and publicly, leading to a spontaneous onstage marriage to an ordinary Joe played by Owen Wilson. The combination of celebrity, tabloid scandal, and romantic contrivance pointed us straight in the direction of 1999's Notting Hill, written by storied rom-com practitioner Richard Curtis and starring Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant as our respective superstar and schmo. So we're using this opportunity to look back at what the rom-com was then and what it's become in the ensuing two decades. Notting Hill is available for digital rental on all the usual platforms, and Marry Me will be in theaters and streaming on Peacock beginning February 11th. Until then, we welcome your feedback on the tragedy of Macbeth, Throne of Blood, and anything else film-related you want to talk about. Please send those emails to comments at nextpictureshow.net and come talk to us on Patreon, where we'll feature one every week on Feedback Friday. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Natasha Robinson. I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com, where I have been uh, slowly and behind everybody else covering Sundance. More and more writing about film over there. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Best guest ever, uh, David Chen. <laughs> where where can people find you? Are you up to anything these days that you'd like to talk about? Or are you, you completely project free right now? Mm, well, speaking of Sundance, I just recorded an episode uh, about Sundance with film critic Caroline Sita for my podcast, Culturally Relevant. Check that out at culturallyrelevantshow.com or wherever your podcasts can be downloaded. And you know what? I'm going to throw this out there. I'm on TikTok. I post a new oh. TikTok every day at tiktok.com 
slash at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chensky. Why? Cool. That's our first TikTok plug. I like it. <laughs> I'm bringing you guys into the 21st century. I know. Here I thought I was cool plugging my Instagram, but uh, I'm on I'm on there at Genevieve Kosky, and I'm also on Twitter, also at Genevieve Kosky, and I am the TV editor at Vulture.com and host Scott Tobias. What about you? Wait, wait. Uh, before yeah, so, you throw to, to Scott, oh. I'm never going to ever let this go. Please, please plug your, uh, your dog's Instagram because <laughs> the latest picture you sent me of how that dog sits made my week. Tasha, I like that you keep making me plug my dog's Instagram because you're not on Instagram and won't actually be able to follow it. <laughs> I refuse to join Instagram. I, I want everybody who is on Instagram to have, a, have a, an experience that I'm having vicariously via personal curation from Genevieve Cosby. <laughs> All right. Well, my dog, Brody, is on Instagram at Ladybird the Horgy. Now, Scott, <laughs> what about uh, you? <laughs> yeah. Well, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find uh, my work in uh, The Reveal, uh, the, the newsletter I do with uh, Keith Phipps. And uh, that's the thereveal.substack.com. And you can find my work at uh, The New York Times, uh, Vulture, uh, Guardian, uh, Rolling Stone, other fine publications uh our absent co-host keith of course again is uh part of the reveal with me and uh you can find his work and uh and gq and uh vulture uh and a whole bunch of other uh, places as well very busy person uh keith phipps uh many thanks again to our guest david chen for being with us david i hope you had a good time uh i hope with, there were uh, enough dick jokes for you <laughs> yeah, you know, I know the energy I brought to the podcast probably a little bit different. So if you have any complaints, uh, my Twitter handle is at kphips3000 on Twitter. <laughs> Just uh, tweet any complaints at that address, okay? So you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Mm-hmm.